Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. Good morning, friends. Welcome. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, Last week, Adam kicked off our new sermon series on the life of David, and it's called David. Part one is called David Formed in Waiting, and we'll start part two at Lent, and that will be David, a broken and contrite heart. And today we're going to look at what may be a very familiar story to some of you, if you grew up in the church especially, um, the, st- the, the story of David and Goliath. Um, but we're going to look at it from a, a few, what I hope to be fresh angles today. Um, so we're going to uh, be reading from 1 Samuel 17. And before I invite Carissa up to read, uh, I just want to give us a little context so that we know where we are in this story. So context, the Philistines, the Philistines are Israel's enemy, right? And they have set up camp in the region of Judah on this hill. And so Israel gathers its army on the opposite hill with a valley in between. And, and Israel is preparing for war. And there's this particular Philistine named Goliath who is very tall, right? And we're told he's actually over nine feet tall. So Goliath isn't just tall. He's extraordinarily tall. And his ego is even taller. So Goliath proposes that instead of the two armies fighting it out, Israel should just put forward its best man, and Goliath will fight him hand-to-hand, fight to the death. If Israel wins, the Philistines become Israel's slaves. But if Goliath wins, then the Israelites become the Philistines' slaves. Well, as you can imagine, there's tremendous fear in the Israelite camps because no man is a match for Goliath, and they know it, right? And so for 40 days, every morning and every evening, Goliath comes out and taunts the Israelites. And he says, I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Enter David. Who's David? David is a shepherd boy. His father is a man named Jesse. Jesse has eight sons and David is the youngest, right? So in ancient Israel, that meant that being the youngest, he he got the short end of the stick. All the privileges went to the older brothers. They got the inheritance. They got to serve in the army. David is stuck at home tending the family's sheep and sometimes running errands for his father. Well, one day, uh, his father sends him to the Israelite camp with some bread and cheese for David's brothers and for their commander. And when David's at the camp to deliver the bread and the cheese, he hears Goliath making his taunts right? And he's absolutely incensed. And he tells King Saul that he himself will fight David. I'm sorry, Goliath. (laughs) David will fight Goliath. Well, Saul practically laughs at him. I I mean, just ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. But David explains that as a shepherd, once to protect the sheep, he actually struck down a lion. And on another occasion, he, he struck down a bear, And so the king essentially says, what the heck? And here's where we're going to pick up on the story. So I'm going to invite Carissa up, and she's going to read uh, uh, 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, 
because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that this is not by sword or spear, but the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. Thanks, Carissa. Wow, so we have a thrilling story to talk about here today. And we love this story because it's the ultimate underdog story, right? It shouldn't be possible. It shouldn't be true, but it is. The dragon is slayed, and not by a great army bearing swords and shields, but by a youth with a single stone from the river. So today what I want us to do is to look at this story, but specifically look at three details, three kind of angles that I think are particularly instructive in the story, um, but that also have something to do with our lives. And the first of those details, the first angle I want us to look at is simply this, is background information that we have, and that is that David is a shepherd. And Adam explained last week that being a shepherd in ancient Israel was really being the lowest status in society. You were practically a nobody if you were a shepherd. And I wonder, as a shepherd, the youngest in his family, did, did David ever dream about being a soldier like his older brothers? Maybe being important someday or doing something of consequence instead of hanging out with a bunch of sheep all day. It turns out that David's shepherding days, they weren't wasted, right? Because God was actually using that time in his life in a very significant way to prepare him for things that were going to come in years ahead. For example, David, as a shepherd, had a lot of time on his hands, didn't he? And so to pass the time, what did he do? Well, we know that he played the harp and that he sang and that he wrote songs. In fact, his songs uh, are, are the Psalms, uh, which uh, Ian quoted this morning, right? And so the Psalms are the heartbeat of Jewish and Christian worship and have been for thousands of years. In fact, probably the most well-known part of all of Scripture and perhaps the most beloved 
is a psalm. Any, anyone? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Sound familiar? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. David hadn't been a shepherd. I'm not sure he could have written that. How many people around the world and across time have found comfort in this psalm, have found direction, renewed faith, hope for the future, rest? Thank God that David was a shepherd because it gave him a revelation of God as a shepherd and um, it also gave him lots and lots of time to get good at playing the harp and writing songs and eventually writing the psalms. So God was also forming David in his shepherd years in another way, right? Because we see that he has to defend the sheep. There's no mobile electric fences for rotational grazing like we have today, right? And so uh, the shepherd with his staff and his rod was the fence, was the protection for the sheep. So apparently David killed a lion to protect the sheep. And on another occasion, he killed a bear. Well, maybe the lion and the bear were dress rehearsals for something to come, like Goliath, right? And when David fended off those predators, he experienced God's help. He experienced his help firsthand. Now, obviously, David had great skill and, and great strength, right? But we see him testify to God's help. Earlier in the chapter, um, he says to Saul, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine, right? So David experienced God's intervention from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he wouldn't soon forget this. And this became a foundation for faith in the God who is real and who has the power to help, the power to intervene. Have you ever looked back on your life and maybe you were able to just connect a few dots uh, between early experiences that you had and the way in which God used some of those early experiences, maybe to prepare you for some later experiences. You know, when that happens, it's really wonderful because we see, we just get this glimpse of God's grace woven into the fabric of our lives, the fabric of our days, uh, in a way that we can't always see in the moment, right? Let me share a brief story my first year out of college was really hard. Uh, it was, if I were to draw like a timeline of my life, you know, with the highs and the lows, this would be like the valley. Um, I, I took a, a, a job teaching in a private girls' school. I was teaching a foreign language in Virginia in this tiny town with 400 people. It was like I didn't know anyone, and I was in way above my head. It was just trial by fire every day. Uh, they didn't really care. They just needed a body in this classroom, and so I was that body. Um, but every day I felt like I was just barely surviving, barely making it through. From very early on in the year, I just knew this wasn't for me. But I also felt like I needed to finish the year. I wanted to make good on my commitment, but I also felt like God had me there for some reason, and I just wanted to see that year out and, and see what he had to teach me, and so I stuck it out. But looking back, the job was such a dead-end job for me, and I often have wondered, why, God, did you allow me to make that decision? I mean, I was praying and so forth. Like, what, what, Was that like a mistake? Did I like not hear you right? Was that like, why, why did you allow me to take that job? Why did you allow me to waste that year? What good came out of that year? Well, God hasn't fully given me the answer to that question. I'm okay with that. 
But one thing I do know is, well, this is a little thing, but it is a lot easier for me to stand in front of you holding this microphone (laughs) than it would have been because of the day after day, month after month, standing in front of class after class, uh, uh, teaching and, and, and teaching. Um, and the other thing that stands out from that year is that I was so hungry and desperate for God just to speak, to, 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 to comfort, to lead me, to shed any kind of light on my life. And I remember I, I, just, I just began to establish this rhythm of going to the Word every day between 5 and 5.30, which was like the time between like when I couldn't work anymore and when dinner was. Um, and so every day, and I remember reading books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy and these books that I never thought I would hear God's voice in. And he spoke to me through those books. And I learned to grow in a rhythm of going to God's word and to drink deeply from that well. Well, that's a thing that, that's something that has been a foundation for my life today. So God was at work in David's life when he was a shepherd, forming and shaping him, preparing him for the opportunities and the challenges to come. And I believe that he's always at work in our lives as well, doing the same thing. Oh, and I, I would say be, to take that one step further, I think that he's also at work in our lives, preparing us for things that are beyond this life that we know not of. Um, but he's preparing us and shaping us to be the people that we will be in eternity as well as in this life. Um, so let's l- move on to the second detail that I want us to look at. And I'm really excited about this detail because I just think it's a fascinating detail. It's the moment when the king offers David his armor. So let's reread that section, starting in verse 38. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of uh, armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. And then he took his staff in in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the river, from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Let me ask you a question. What do you think David might have been thinking or feeling in those few moments when he was wearing the king's armor, before he took the king's armor off? I, I wonder if we could use our imaginations. Would anyone be brave enough to shout out a word? What he might be feeling? There's no wrong answers here. Too small. I like that. Ooh, feeling like an imposter. Anything else? Not comfortable. Oh, slow down, way down, slow down. Anything else? Jesus? Well, we'll get to that part. <laughs> weak, weak. Yeah. Awkward. Oh, yeah. He might have been replaying the times. He, placed, he faced the line of the bear, remembering those times. Ingenuine, interesting. Lots of great words here. 
Wanting to what? Wanting it to fit better. Wanting it to work. Wanting to, to wear this armor. I like that. I mean, maybe like he wanted to make this work. I mean, what an honor. You know, this would be, um, what, 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 this would be amazing if he could enter wearing the king's armor. Uh, well, these are all great and wonderful answers. And I imagine that there's a true mixture of contradictory feelings in David, right? How could there not be when something so incredible has just happened to him, right? He's been publicly honored by the king himself. But how awkward is this? He's been honored in a way that is quite unhelpful. Right? David wears the armor. If he wears the armor, it's going to slow him down. It's going to cramp his agility. It's going to compromise his focus. It might even lead to his defeat and perhaps all of Israel's defeat. And so David has to decide what to do about the armor. And in the end, he removes it and he leaves it behind. He can't be what the king wants him to be in this situation he has to be himself in this situation, right? To me, the armor is a really powerful metaphor for something that each of us has and navigates every day, and it's the false self. And let me explain what I mean by the false self. The world has a map and a plan for your life and my life, right? Have you noticed that? Culture wants to write the script for our lives Sometimes we can play that game, and we'll go kind of a long ways. But in the end, ultimately, it will leave us hollow and empty. And I ask you this morning, what armor has the world placed on your shoulders? Or does it want to place on your shoulders? What armor is it trying to place on your shoulders? Is there an institution that's trying to remake you in its image? Is there a cultural uniform you are feeling pressure to wear? Is there an unrealistic expectation that you've inherited from your family of origin that you're shouldering and it's weighing you down and it's keeping you from doing the thing that you're called to do or being the person that you're called to be? So the false self is the person that the world wants you to be, but which God hasn't designed you to be. And the false self is also the person that each one of us strives to become, to look good and to succeed. It's the facades that we choose to wear. Maybe not even rationally choose to wear because they're from so long ago that we've just incorporated them into who we are, right? And that's the dangerous part, right? The danger is that eventually we become our facades. And that is the false self. Here are two ingredients uh, in the false self. Two of the main ingredients, I think, in, in the false self uh, Pride and striving. Here's a definition of pride from the Catholic philosopher Peter Kreft. I'm not sure if it's Kreft or Kreft. Someone can correct me later. Pride does not mean simply an exaggerated opinion of your own self-worth. That's vanity, he says. Pride means playing God, demanding to be God. Pride is my will be done, humility thy will be done. Pride is actually the first sin that we see in the Bible. It's the sin of Adam and Eve, right? They, they thought they knew better than God. And so they chose to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, even though God had told them not to. They thought maybe they're smarter than God. They would get around God. So pride is the fuel, I would say, of the false self. The other aspect of the false self that I just want to touch on briefly is striving. So if pride is the fuel of the false self, 
I would say striving is its operating mode. What, what is striving? Here's a biblical understanding of striving. Uh, in my own words, just a, a summary of what I, what I would say striving is. Striving is doing things in our own strength and relying on our own efforts apart from the help or direction or grace of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I confess that I strive every day. It's probably my default. Maybe it's our default. I don't know. But the good news is that every time we find ourselves striving, we have the opportunity to turn to Jesus once again and to surrender and an opportunity to receive from his grace, an opportunity to reset in his love, to trust in his provision again, his promises, his direction, his strength. Is there an area in your life where you find yourself striving? Maybe it's a big decision that you're making, but you're trying to figure it out on your own. What would it look like to invite God into the the conversation, uh, a conversation around that decision? Maybe you're striving in the context of a work project that you're trying to complete on time and with excellence and in your own strength. Maybe your striving is your own self-improvement project, right? Maybe you're trying really hard to be more patient <laughs> or trying not to swear so much, or maybe you're trying to pray more, just need to pray more. <laughs> you know, we can't even do those things on our own, friends. We can't just pray more on our own. That is a gift from God. He helps us with that. He gives us the strength. He pours out his grace it would do us well to go to him quickly instead of putting him off. When we do these things on our own and in our own strength, here's what happens. They become a set of heavy, ill-fitting armor that weighs us down. So whatever area of, of life you find yourself striving in, God has something to say to you. And this is what he says. Why don't you leave behind the burdensome armor? If you ask me, I will help you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. How do you know when you're not striving? You know it when the burden isn't weighing you down. It's not crushing. It's there, but it's not crushing, right? Because you're actually wearing Jesus's yoke. And when you're wearing Jesus' yoke, it's pretty hard to strive. So what's the opposite of the false self? Anyone? The true self. Okay. (laughs) The opposite of the false self is the true self. And the true self, what is that? The true self lies deep Inside us, beneath many layers, and Rich Velotis defines it as this. The true self is the place within us where we are found securely wrapped in God's love. Are you ready for something existentially profound? If you like existentially profound, I recommend reading Thomas Merton. Maybe you can like, illuminate me on what he means. Uh, you know, I think I get about every 20th sentence that I read of his. Um, But here's something he says that really stood out to me. Ultimately, the only way I can be myself is to become identified with him in whom is hidden the reason and fulfillment of my existence. The secret of my identity is hidden 
and the love and mercy of God. Paul says it like this in Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what does all of this have to do with David? Well, I believe that when David is there in that moment wearing the king's armor, he has to make a decision, right? It's a very practical decision on one hand, right? Can he do this, practically speaking? But he's also making the decision about whether to move forward in his false self or in his true self. Whether to assume the king's expectations on his shoulders, the king's plan for his success, the world's plan for his success, or God's plan for his success. You know, I imagine, and indulge me in my imagination here just for one moment, but I imagine that for just a passing moment, while David is standing there wearing the king's armor and his honor, right, um, that David cherished the idea of playing the part of the hero, that maybe he was tempted to pretend to be a great warrior and forget for a few moments that he was ever a shepherd, And I wonder, did he enjoy that trophy moment when he's wearing the king's armor? I mean, it must have felt like he won a gold medal at the Olympics before he even ran the race. And I especially wonder what he was hoping his brothers were thinking. Because his brothers were older and they looked down on him. And earlier in the the story, we see that one of them is sneering at him. Did, Did he imagine his brother's uh, seeing this moment, was part of him thinking to, in his mind, was he saying in his mind to his brothers, look at me, see, I really am a big deal. <laughs> I imagine perhaps for a moment, yes, at least just for a moment. But that would have been the false self speaking, right? And, and David knows he can't go forward to face Goliath wearing a facade, And so he leaves the armor behind. He's honest with himself and he's honest with the king. And he refuses to be anyone uh, but who he is. A shepherd boy trusting his shepherd God. So let's look at the final detail and angle of this story that I just want us to to take a look at quickly. So David is, is swordless, right, when he enters this fight. Um, He takes down Goliath with a, a powerful sling of a river stone But then what does he do? He slays Goliath with his own sword. He takes Goliath's sword and decapitates him. Uh, Let's read that part, starting in verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle lines to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand. He struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. Well, there's the bloody part. So it's pretty ironic to begin with, right? That Goliath is the loser. Goliath should not be the loser in this, in this fight, right? He's the, the champion of war. He's the mercenary. He's the, you know, the pro. Uh, David is just a little amateur kid, right? Um, but even more ironic than that is how Goliath dies, right? And the fact that Goliath 
is actually slain by his own sword. Very ironic. Now, when there is irony in a story, we have to pay attention because the irony is saying something. But the question is, what is the irony saying? What, what is it teaching us? Well, this irony is actually part of a larger pattern in Scripture where we see this, this, this is the pattern. People motivated by evil suffering the harm that they intended others. Right? We see it in the book of Esther. Right? Haman tries to wipe out the Jewish people, and in the end, he's the one who's exterminated. We see it in Jesus' parable of the rich man and the beggar named Lazarus, right? The rich man dies, and he finds himself a beggar in hell. And Lazarus, the beggar, is comforted by angels in heaven. And David is very well aware of this pattern. And later in his life, he's writing the Psalms, and, and he, he, he turns this into a way of praying about his enemies, right? And he says this to God uh, about his enemies in Psalm 35, since they hid their net for me without cause and without cause dug a pit for me, may ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hid entangle them. May they fall into the pit to their ruin. Isn't it true today that we also tend to fall into the traps that we set for others? I mean, just think about the foolishness of lying. We think we're so smart. Right? We subtly twist events to protect ourselves or to make something look good. We're so shrewd, but it always comes back to bite us. Right, and We fall into the pit we dig for another person. And the deeper the pit we dig for that other person, the farther we are liable to fall. So let this be a lesson to us that we will reap what we sow. And that is a, a biblical uh, truth, we will reap what we sow. And so if we sow malice and duplicity and greed, we can expect to reap it. But I, I think there's an encouragement for us here too. And, and so let this also be an encouragement to us. Violence and malice and greed don't get the last word because deep in the core of evil is the seed of its own undoing. Let me say that again. Deep in the core of evil is the seed of its own undoing. And that's the truth that we see in the irony right here where Goliath dies by his own sword. So we've looked at three different angles, and I just want us to step back now and to wrap things up and to sort of pan out and look at the bigger picture, the bigger story, and just ask, well, what is it that we're to take away from, from this story, right? What, 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 what do we take away from this story? Here's what I'm taking away from the story. There are many things you can take away from this story. Here's what I'm taking away. Maybe it's what you'll take away as well. David is a hero, right? This is a story about a hero, but David is a flawed hero, he makes many mistakes. Some of them are really bad. We're going to read about some of them um, in the coming weeks. Uh, and, and David died as a man with much blood on his hands. But the story of David here and Goliath is more than a story about David. It's a story that points us forward to one who would come after him, a much, much greater hero. In fact, a flawless hero a Messiah. And so here are some of the parallels that we see between David and the Messiah to whom this story points. Interestingly, the Messiah is also a shepherd. 
right? He wasn't a shepherd who tended sheep. We know that Jesus was actually a carpenter, but he was a shepherd who tended souls. And he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. And interestingly, also like uh, David, the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. Most kings, by the way, were born in Jerusalem, not in backwater towns like Bethlehem, but David was born in Bethlehem. And so too did the one uh, his story pointed to. Just like David, Jesus rejected the king's armor. In his own way, he did. Jesus' disciples wanted to make him king. They wanted Jesus to send the Romans running. They wanted Jesus to enter the palace in Jerusalem and sit on the throne and end Roman occupation once and for all and restore Israel. And the disciples were willing to fight to see this happen. They were even willing to die for it. But Jesus refused. Jesus refused to put on their expectations for him. Jesus refused to put on the king's armor. In fact, he refused to put on any armor. Jesus did not come to fight. He, in fact, said those who live by the sword die by the sword. Jesus did not come to seek political power. He didn't come to overthrow the Roman Empire. He didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. He came to inaugurate an eternal kingdom. And so Jesus uh, resisted every attempt to be made king. He would be made king but not the kind of king that they envisioned. In fact, on the day of his coronation, Jesus wore a crown, but it wasn't a crown of gold. It was a crown of thorns. And his throne wasn't in a palace. It was on a hill called Golgotha. And on that hill, he was nailed to a cross. And the cross, his criminal's death, looked like the ultimate defeat. It looked like the ultimate defeat, but it was actually the ultimate victory. Because what was Jesus doing on that cross? He was taking down Goliath. He wasn't taking down a Philistine. He wasn't even taking down the Roman Empire. He was taking down something much, much, much bigger. As he hung dying on the cross, Jesus took down the Goliath of sin. And he took down the Goliath of the curse of sin, which is death. Now, David took down the Philistine in a way that no one saw coming, right? And so, uh, just like David, Jesus uh, robbed sin of its power in a way no one saw coming by laying down his life. It looked like defeat, right? But in dying, he defeated Satan with his own sword. Death itself, that's Satan's sword. Because of Jesus' death on the cross and because of his resurrection on the third day, Jesus overcame death's power so that no one need be beholden to it. It's true, one day all of us will pass through death. But thanks be to God, we will not be beholden to it. So friends, if there is a battle you are fighting today, if there is a Goliath you are facing. I have good news for you. The battle is the Lord's, and he's already won it for us. Jesus is our David. Goliath is slain, and we've been set free. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the story of David.
Thank you for all of the ways in which the stories of Scripture point to your ultimate plan, O Lord, for revealing your heart to the world and uh, saving uh, the world and redeeming the world uh, through your Son, Jesus. O Lord God, we pray that um, we might follow um, Jesus well and that we might uh, resist striving, resist the armor that the world would put on our shoulders uh, and trust that the person and the people that you have called us to be and designed us to be are exactly, Lord, um, how you would have us to face the battle, O oh Lord God. And we just want to thank you that you are the one, O oh Lord, who faces it for us and with us and that you have indeed overcome it. And so I just pray for all of the things, Lord, that um, are on our minds and hearts, Lord, the battles that we're in the impossible situations that we face, even the things that just are heavy upon us like fear. Perhaps there's specific fears. Oh, Lord, we would lay them down before you, and we would um, ask for your victory, oh, Lord, in each one of these contexts, Lord. And we will wait for you, Lord. We will wait for you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.